Welcome to Eye to Eye, the podcast of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. My name is Sunil Mamtora and I will be your host. Today I'm very pleased to bring you the much-awaited second episode in our podcast series. Our first interview is with Mr. Aman Chandra, a vitreoretinal surgeon who works at the South End NHS Foundation Trust. I spoke with him at the recent EU Retina meeting in Paris, following his instructional course about the use and safety of oil and liquid devices in vitreoretinal surgery. Mr. Chandra, thanks a lot for joining us today to discuss your instructional course yesterday, which was really interesting, about the use and safety of oil and liquid devices in vitreoretinal surgery. Many of the listeners for the podcast might be a bit confused or um, uncertain about you know, the use of oils and liquid devices in ophthalmology. Could I just start by asking you to demystify you know, what are heavy liquids, what are oils, sure. and what do we use them for in ophthalmology? Yeah. Um, thanks, Anil. So, um, silicon oils uh, have been around since the 60s. Um, and really took off in the 80s um, uh, in, in use of vitreoretinal surgery. And primarily nowadays we use them in complicated vitreoretinal detachments, sorry, retinal detachments with, um, with PVR present um, and sometimes in diabetics when there's membranes left in the eye. And why do we use them? It's because they're safe, they're generally safe, sorry, and they're inert um, and they can provide a, a relatively long-term tamponading effect on the retina. What does that mean? Let's talk about retinal detachments. To treat a retinal detachment, you have to treat the tear that's caused it with retinopexy. Retinopexy takes a week or so to work. And in that period, while it's working, you need to put the retina in place and hold it in place while the retinopexy is working. And you can do that in one of two methods, putting a buckle on the outside, which is cryobuckle, or putting a tamponading agent within the eye. What is a tamponading agent? It's an agent that's inside the eye that holds the retina in place from the inside while the retinopexy works. And most of the time we use gas for that because it, it gets absorbed in time. In complicated cases, we might use silicon oil. And why? Because it stays in the eye, it doesn't get absorbed, so it stays there for longer and gives you um, a longer period of, of, uh, of tamponading, which means holding the retina in place. So that's silicon oils, and silicon oils float, so they are better at holding the superior retina in place. You can get heavy oils, which are useful for inferior pathology. Heavy liquids are different. So what's the difference between heavy liquids and silicon oils? Heavy liquids have a higher density, so they sink. Silicon oils float. So if you think about oil in a pan, it will float on top of your water. Heavy liquid has a higher density than water, so it sinks. So when you use it in surgery, we use it because it has a high density and sinks to the bottom of the, of the eye, and we can therefore use it to flatten retinas because of its, 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 its high density. So most often heavy liquids are used as an intraoperative tool, not usually left as a tamponading agent, whereas silicon oils are used more frequently, well, always, as a tamponading agent for long term, for three, six months, or even longer, something. Sure. I mean, your talk discussed about the vision loss and toxicity related to oils and perfluorocarbons. Yes. Tell us about that, because you know, from my teaching, you know, silicone as a substance I've been taught is an inert substance. Mm. So it seems quite concerning that silicone oil itself could be harmful to the retina. Yeah. So these are two different topics. So the, 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 the vision loss from heavy liquids and silicone oils are two very different topics. So we'll talk about oils first. Vision loss from silicon oil use is a well-recognized problem. It's a, it's a phenomenon that happens, and what happens, there's two types. 
So let me let me let me let me um, let me give you the clinical case. We have a patient who has a complicated renal attachment. We put silicon oil in the eye. We leave it there for three months. We then do an operation to remove the silicon oil, and bang, the vision drops. At the moment, we take the oil out. So this is what can happen. That's one case where it's a dramatic crash, and the other the other circumstances where the vision loss is gradual and slow while the oil is in the eye. How often does that happen? Probably in the re it varies between 3% to maybe even 30%. It's a big variation. And why that, yeah. exactly. And why that happens, we don't know. We, we have no idea about it. Actually, when we, as, when we, when we looked at giant retinal tears, traditionally used, people use silicon oil to tamponade the, the, the detachment. So when you look at macular on giant retinal tears, it's a really good subset of patients to look at because any vision loss would be quite obvious. If you have, for example, a macular on GRT who starts off with 6x vision, if they have vision loss, it'll be quite obvious to, to detect. And we looked at that a few years ago in a paper that we published in I. We demonstrated that 50% of patients with macular on GRTs who had silicon oil as a tamponade had vision loss. 50% of macular on GRTs. It's, it's dramatic. It's a big problem. So that's the silicon oil vision loss, which we, 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 is a well-known phenomenon, and currently there's a Bose study looking at that. The heavy liquids is a very different story. As I said, heavy liquids is generally used as an intraoperative tool. It's not usually used as a tamponade, although you can sometimes. In many parts of Europe and, and across the world, heavy liquid is used in every detachment operation to flatten the retina. It's an intraoperative tool. And there were 120 cases in Spain last uh, two years ago who had dramatic vision loss from using heavy liquid as an intraoperative tool. So we're, we're talking about leaving it in the eye for about five or six minutes. And these patients went to NPL vision, absolute necrosis of the retina. So this is a different phenomenon that's not common, but it, and it turned out that the, the reason that happened is because of impurities of the heavy liquid. And that's where this course was, was, was about, was teaching people about the, 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 the governance around the safety of these, these liquids. Sure. But how could it be that there's impurities in the oils or liquids that we're injecting into the eyes? Wow. Yeah, that's this, is, this is the key point, in my opinion. So heavy liquids and oils are defined in the EU as devices, a medical device as opposed to a pharmaceutical product. So pharmaceutical products, drugs, go through a different regulatory process. So an infitrial drug that we might use in the eye, the process and safety, the safety governance that that goes through is, is very stringent. Devices such as hips, uh, hips or breast implants or cardiac implants or oils or IOLs, these go through a different process of regulation. And it's much less stringent. So, Presently, the ISO standards, ISO standards for these devices, in my opinion, are weak. And the onus for regulation is on the companies themselves. So when you have looser, looser regulations and the onus of regulation is based on, 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 on the companies themselves, you can get batches of oils and liquids that are toxic. And that's what happened in, in, in the Spanish circumstances. Uh, mm -hmm. So how did these patients present? I mean, you mentioned that they've gone from good vision to no perception of light. Um, what clinical features did they manifest with? 
so the retinas were, necro were ne necrotic. They, they absolute, you know, vascular necrosis. Sorry, uh, necrosis of the retina. Um, it's a dramatic um, situation that's unmissable by anyone. Okay. Okay. So that's the heavy liquids. Though. The, the, the oil problem is much more subtle. Sure. And there's no clinical features, really, apart from some OCT findings. Okay. And the main OCT findings are um, microcystic changes in the retina. Okay. It's very subtle. Do those take a long time to appear? Yeah, they, they, they don't appear immediately. Okay, sure. I mean, looking around the trade exhibition, for example, in the EU Retina Conference, I've seen that there's many different manufacturers, suppliers, and variations of oils and liquids. How can a clinician decide which one is the purest or best for their patient? Well, I can't tell you that answer. Um, but what you need to be able to do is speak to the reps and ask them specifically about their own company's assessment of, of purity and toxicity of their samples and you have to drill down on the reps. And the reason you do that is because then that, if they can't answer the questions, it'll feed up to the higher people in those companies. Sure. But you need to, as a clinician, be sure that the company who are trying to sell you devices have done all they can. And these companies are not malicious. There's nothing malicious about them. I ju you just need to be able to show that they've um, taken due diligence to um, assess their own products. Sure. I mean, so we've touched on the fact that you know, devices in the vitreoretinal sphere, oils, heavy liquids, have a problem with regulation, potential impurities, and the way they're processed and the way they're marketed in, the, in, the, in Europe. Does this problem also apply to other dyes, stains, and liquids that we use in ophthalmology in general, such as you know, dual blue for Absolutely. staining membranes, yep. or maybe even capsular stains and things like that as well? Absolutely. So those, those dyes are the same, they're regulated in the same way, which in my opinion is under-regulated. So dual uh, capsule um, blue that you might use, tripan blue for capsule staining, or we use something called uh, uh, dual blue for, 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 for retinal staining. They are all regulated in a similar fashion, which is under-regulated uh, under in my opinion. Okay, I mean so, so people use these dyes to stain cataracts. Do you know how regulated that dye is that you're, you're, you're putting into a patient? To us, I've got no idea no. whatsoever. It's because yeah. it's, uh, we just use it and we assume that it's safe. I think we trust that if something's being used in the NHS, that it's been rigorously tested. That's not the case, always. Yeah. That's not always the case. Sometimes it is. But the regulation is not there to ensure that. So over 100 people lost vision completely With heavy in liquid. Spain. Yeah. Um, you know surely something must have happened after that to change the way we look at these devices. So there have been changes uh, in 2017 to the um, regulation of devices, medical devices, in a, in a response to those cases in Spain. And the regulation has become more stringent. The difficulty is with any device, medical devices, that having centralised um, agencies looking at very specific devices is very difficult to look at toxicity and safety of each individual device. Okay. And those changes have, 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 have happened, but in my opinion, they're nowhere near how regulated medication are, and yet they are going into, into people. So I think they're equally important okay. to be regulated. So that's not the case in America. So in America, these things are closer to drugs, so the, 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 the governments is much tighter. As a result, in America, <clears throat> they don't have the, some of the stains that we use on the macula because it's taken so long for, the, for these companies to get these stains into America because the regulatory processes is stri stricter. 
If you don't mind me just going back to the silicon oils. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned that in your own study, that 50% of patients who had a use of silicon oil for a giant retinal tear. Macularon. Macularon retinal detachment was suspected of having vision loss related to silicon oil. I mean, that's a huge number. You said that you, we don't really know why that is, but are there any hypotheses why that might be? There are theories, a variety of theories. Some include light toxicity, light toxicity. Some suggestions of um, high potassium in the retro oil f fluid. No theories have come, have, have been definitive. Sure. Um, so, in answer to your question, we have no idea, if I'm perfectly honest. And that's partly why there's a Bowser study currently run, yeah. running to collect these cases and then look at the batches of oils that we use in those circumstances. Because I do, I feel that it's, it's, there perhaps is an issue with some of these oils mm. and maybe that's part of the problem. Okay. So tell us a bit more about the BOSU study, what's going on and how are we collecting data for that? So as you know, BOSU is a, is a UK-wide um, epidemiological study um, run for the Royal College and they're looking at patients who've had um, unexplained vision loss, silicon oil vision loss, defined as loss of two lines, stellan lines or greater after removal of silicon oil. So anyone in the U, any any ophthalmologist in the UK that has a case like this fills in the yellow form, um, and uh, it's collected through Bozu. Sure. Has there been much of a response so far? They, I think they've had 28 patients so far uh, in nine months in the UK. Okay. Well, I think it'd be really interesting to you know see the results of that Bozu yeah. study and see actually maybe there's a specific cause. Do you think there'll be a trend away from using silicon oil in vitreoretinal surgery as a result of this? No, I don't think so. Silicon oil is really important uh, yeah. adjuvant, uh, adjuvant uh, really important um, uh, device that we have, and its use is important and, and relevant. So I don't think there will be a trend because the circumstances you use oil in are generally circumstances where you need to use oil. Okay. In more difficult, difficult cases. Difficult cases, yes. Okay. And so, I don't think there'd be a trend away from it. It would be a, a, in certain circumstances there might be a trend. So I mentioned a bit about giant retinal tears. Yeah. So traditionally, people would use silicon oil in all giant retinal tear attachments. Why is that? There was a concern that giant retinal tear attachment had a risk of higher risk of PVR and failure. So people would put oil in the eye to keep the retina attached for so to, to have a longer tamponade. As a result of our findings of macular angiitis. I never recommend silicon oil use in giant retinal tears anymore. Okay, okay. Well, you know, it's been really interesting. Thanks for talking to me about this, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the meeting. Yeah, thanks, Sunil. Well, I found that really interesting, and I hope you did too. It was great talking to Oman, and we're planning for him to make another appearance on the show in the near future. Our second interview is with Mr. Mike Burden, a general ophthalmologist with a special interest in neuro-ophthalmology, as well as, of course, being the college president. We caught up to speak about the newly published strategic plan from the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. So thanks for joining us, Mr. Berlin. And tell us about the strategic plan. Well, thank you for inviting me to join you today. Um, the strategic plan is really the college's interpretation of, and, and, and statement of what it intends to do over the next three years. It is a high-level document based on what our charter says our college is supposed to do. And that is why, right at the beginning of the, of the, the document that will be released shortly, it sets out and reminds us what our charter is. And that is, uh, our obligations in that charter are to advance the science and practice of ophthalmology, to educate medical practitioners in the science and practice of ophthalmology, 
to maintain proper standards in the practice of ophthalmology for the benefit of the public, to promote study and research in ophthalmology and related subjects and publish the useful results of such study and research, the further instruction and training in ophthalmology both in the United Kingdom and overseas, and the education of the general public in all matters related to vision and the health of the human eye. So that is what the college exists to do. And our strategy uh, document basically describes how we hope to, inter uh, to, to, to deliver our charter in the context of modern ophthalmic care with the aim of providing good quality care for our patients and to support our, our ophthalmologists throughout the whole of their career. That's what it's there to do. And then it goes on to describe what we will do in terms of uh, developing standards, working with outside bodies, things that, will, uh, that are in line with the college's objectives. And there is a particular emphasis in this particular document on workforce. Sure. Tell us about the biggest challenges with regards to the workforce. Um, workforce is now recognised as one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest uh, challenge facing the NHS in general. And I think every ophthalmologist working in the United Kingdom would recognise that we are undersupplied with workforce. And uh, this is partly because our specialty is growing uh, in line with an ageing population for which there are more treatments available. So uh, I don't think in my lifetime as a, as, a, as a consultant I've ever felt that we have ever been uh, had sufficient capacity to deal with the demands of the service. So the workforce uh, uh, problems I think are getting worse. And I think we have to answer, the, address them in trying to work out uh, who is the right person to see a patient, and the other questions that go along with that are where is the appropriate place for that person to be seen. Sure, I mean, you've touched on some really interesting yep. points there. What do you think the college should do specifically to increase the number of clinicians available to see patients? Yep. Um, well, first of all, I think what we need to do is... Workforce is, is about two things. It's about how many bodies there are on the ground and what do these people do. And uh, the, the first question, in, uh, the first way of viewing this, I think, is to what, what evidence do we need to look at workforce? And there's all sorts of ways you can look at counting what workforce is needed. Uh, as one simple example, we could say of the 1,500 consultant posts in the country, there are 230-odd that are either unfilled or filled with locums. So that could tell you there is a significant gap in the number of being trained. But more importantly, I think what we do need to do going forward is to actually analyse what we as consultants should be doing. In other words, really look at the job we're doing and then saying, is it appropriate for a consultant to do? What aspects of it can be done by, with the assistance of allied health professionals? And how are the major subspecialties best delivered? And that is one of the things that we are going to be doing um, is our workforce review. Sure, so it seems like you've touched on two main yep. issues there. One is a lack of number of trainees, yep. and secondly, perhaps an increasing role for allied healthcare professionals in ophthalmology. Yep. What specific things do you think the college can do to enhance the role of allied healthcare professionals? Well, the... the there's no doubt in my mind that some of what we do as ophthalmologists does not require the extensive training um, that we that ophthalmologists go through. 
the college has developed a curriculum with, in conjunction with Health Education England that would support the training of allied health professionals such as optometrists, orthoptists and nurses to provide some of the, to, to support the work that is done in eye departments. Um, I think that's an excellent way forward and I think it recognises what ophthalmologists have known for a long time in that such individuals can contribute greatly to the day-to-day work uh, in their departments. The challenge, I think, is going to be how much uptake there will be in the context of uh, eye departments around the country where there's not even enough room for the existing staff to sit down, let alone train up and use anybody else. So the workforce is a very complex issue uh, that is partly dependent on, on the number of people there, but it's also partly dependent on is there enough space for them to work in. Mm. And that, to me, is actually one of the big less recognised challenges of, of workforce at the moment. That's really interesting. With that in mind, do you think yeah. perhaps virtual clinics have a bigger role in the future of ophthalmology? I think they do, but again, I think we have to think what, what we mean by virtual clinics. My, my understanding is that in general terms, what you're doing in a virtual clinic is somebody is collecting data, for example, the intraocular pressure in the field, and somebody somewhere else, possibly at another time, is looking at that result. So uh, it still requires somewhere to collect that data. In other words, uh, just because consultants aren't present doesn't mean you don't need the room, you don't need the technician, you don't need the, the, the field machine, etc. So virtual clinics still don't mean no resource required, if you see what I mean. So uh, I think I, I, I've always questioned what people really mean and what they see as saving. Uh, what are they actually saving when they're talking about virtual clinics? I suppose it depends on where the capacity problem lies, yep. if it's in the room for doing visual fields yep. or measuring pressures, whether it's in clinic rooms. Yep, absolutely. Um, but I think in a lot of eye departments around the country, pretty well every usable room that the ophthalmology department can lay claim to has been converted to the, being used the most efficiently. It's certainly the case in my department. Yeah, and it's astounding that, you know, recently I've read that ophthalmology is now seeing, I think, more than 10% of all outpatient yes. appointments in the NHS. Absolutely. So perhaps we should be fighting for more resources for our patients as well. I think we, absolutely we should. Um, I also think we need to look to, in the longer term, and it's part of the work the college is starting to think about, where do patients need to be seen? And one of the challenges, I think, in, in ophthalmology is eye departments being so wedded to big hospitals um, most patients do not need the resources that the rest of the hospital offer um, and if the model of state management is such that you wait for the new hospital to fall down 50 years later before you can get an extra room in your eye department uh, I think that's not a useful model and I think we may have to start thinking about establishing community clinics where some of the work is done in smaller off-site buildings managing the high-volume, low-risk conditions such as uh, glaucoma off-site. Sure. So we mentioned lack of trainees. Yep. My understanding that is that about every year we have about 70 trainees yep. in ophthalmology. How yep. many do you think we need? Um, it's Again, it goes back to what they're going to do, but I would say that 65 to 70 trainees, the graduate, I think... The OTG studies have suggested that 15% of that, those people will not actually be working in the NHS within about five years, so we're already down to about 60 or less. 
and my impression is that number is no longer more than meeting the retirement, let alone increase in demand. We did put a proposal to NHS England some years ago uh, requesting another 20 trainees per year, and I think that would be a good start. The trouble is that NHS England themselves are cash limited, and it is difficult at the moment to persuade them that they should directly fund further trainees. And for that reason, uh, the college has been exploring using an enhanced CESAR programme to see if we can develop trainees, the, the, the doctors we need, through alternative routes. In the strategic plan in the section under Evolving, the document talks about how the college is going to change the way it interacts with members. Yep. What specific ways do you think the college is going to change to interact with its membership? Well, I am slightly di dinosaur, um, but we, I do recognise that we have to adopt the way we communicate to fit in with how people expect to, communi to be communicated with. Um, we are in the process of redesigning our web site. That I believe that um, we have shortlisted, if not appointed, the website designer. So hopefully in the near future our website will look better. Um, the, we are tweeting better, and between you and me, I have a professional assistance with my tweeting, uh, but we are uh, much more active on social me media than we used to be. And I think we are very lucky that we have Liz and her team in the communications who are getting better and better at trying to explain to, the, to our members in particular, but the, the world in general, what the college is trying to achieve. So again, I think it is a step-by-step -step approach and help would be welcome. Unfortunately, that's the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it and if you did, make sure to subscribe. If you'd like to get involved, come on the show or have any feedback at all we would love to hear from you. Simply send an email to communications at rcops.ac.uk. Episode 3 is already in production and we're really excited to bring it to you very soon. Until next time, take care.